Welcome to Reading Literature in the Age of Trump. My name is Beth, and today we're joined by Mandolin, Kalani, Jordy, and Amanda. Today we're going to discuss The Power by Naomi Alderman, which is a crazy book. It's a work of speculative fiction, which I guess we'll probably touch on. Um, and a brief little summary is that women all of a sudden get a power via an organ in their collarbone. Uh, where they can electrocute people with their touch, and basically just how society is affected by that. Um, I want to begin by hearing from you all um, what your thematic takeaway is from this novel, which is honestly so troubling to kind of digest. And speaking of troubling, I just want to warn people that um, there is violence, sexuality, and violent sexuality. So if that is a concern, Maybe pause here. Thank you, Mandolin. <laughs> but themes, overall themes. The initial premise to me was interesting because I'm a huge comic book fan. And yes. uh, usually comic books are a story of um, like a power fantasy. Mm -hmm. And so having that theme applied to, you know, a big kind of social aspect of life or society um, really jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking forward to seeing like the explorations of that power. Um, yes, especially on such a grand scale where every single woman, for the most part, has this ability to kill all of a sudden. Yeah, absolutely. I think it shows that like regardless of who is in power, um, people will do terrible things if they're able to. Um, yes. It goes to the fact that or the, the philosophy that human beings are, in essence, corrupt. Um, and this, this novel shows specifically that regardless of who's on top, that corruptibility is still present. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the quotes that stood out for me about that um, was on page 333. Um, and it, it's when one of the male characters steals a scheme from... Um, from Roxy, her brother, her stepbrother, I guess, or her half brother. Brother, stepbrother. Yeah, and um, the the I think it's the narrator at this point says, "Power doesn't care who uses it. The scheme doesn't rebel against him. It doesn't know that he's not its rightful mistress. It just says, yes, yes, I can. Yes, you've got this. So this idea that power can be used and misused, and even though the book is very gendered, maybe it explores the idea about power beyond gender in a certain mm -hmm. way because of that. Yeah, I think that Daryl is a really interesting jumping off point. Um, in class, we were talking about Daryl and gender binaries, which I do want to get into. Um, and somebody brought up that Daryl is almost, in this world, the closest character to being somehow transgender. And I kind of want to see if we can dissect that a little bit. I think that um, there's obviously not that same element of gender dysphoria, but there is this sense that he feels like this is his only option because he's living in a world where he just, he's a man. In the past 10 years at this point, there was a patriarchal society and pretty much the whole world. 
And now he feels like something is missing. He's been robbed of something. And he needs to get his hands on a scheme. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Um, and I also think it's interesting that he's the only character that we see uh, getting ripped limb from limb. Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting because you mentioned that there isn't necessarily as much gender dysphoria, but there almost is in the sense that he comes from a family where men were very strong and in power, and suddenly Mm -hmm. they're not. So if you think about it that way, his assigned gender doesn't fit with the position that he thinks he should be in. Absolutely. So I almost see the dysphoria that way, not in the sense necessarily of gender, but in the sense of positions of power, which in the novel, is connected directly to gender. Yeah. And even just Roxy talking about her mob boss father growing up and how she remembers so viscerally uh, his bloody fist recoiling with his ring still on after he just, you know, punched somebody in the face and how that was the only thing ever worth having to her. But... Roxy's a pretty temperate character at the end of the day. She's almost more of a business mogul than she is even a crime boss. I'm, I'm curious because if the, if the book um, explores power and corruption by power, um, we, we've kind of touched on it in class, but I'm curious where people here think Roxy stands mm-hmm. as far as her corruption by power, um, both pre- Pre, um, pre-scheme development, yes. after scheme development, and then after it was taken away from her. I'm curious if anyone has thoughts on Roxy as a character. I, I feel like, at least to me, Roxy was the one of the more dynamic, or to me, she's the most dynamic character of the bunch because she has that desire in the beginning with burning her father to have the power and the associated respect and the potential to influence others that comes with it. And she's also exposed to Eve, who kind of amasses her own following. Mother um, Eve. And, um, and then towards the end, because she, she goes through that change where she has the, the scheme, the power removed. And that's when she reflects on, it's less about what she can do as a person, but more about, hey, you know, let's use our influence to have people work together. Mm-hmm. Um, she tries to convince Eve at the end, you know, not to um, not to instigate Armageddon. And so I think that Roxy, she she may not be perfect, but she always had some sort of you know compass. I felt like mm-hmm. um, she doesn't kill her. She doesn't kill her uh, her stepdad. Um, even though he kind of, or he does grow over. He does. More than once. Yeah, I, th- I think that was a really important scene, that she chooses not to kill him, even when she could kill him with the uh, power. Basically. And even just the scene where uh, Mother Eve, or Allie, um, at first comes across Roxy, who's specifically come to North Carolina. North Carolina? Was it? A Carolina? Somewhere in Carolina, yeah. To find Mother Eve, and what she does is she just goes into the ocean, and she makes, like, this crazy, like, power, electric, circle, sphere, orb, like, just this crazy display of power, 
almost just to see what she can do. And I, she's almost more interested in seeing what she can do than she ever is in exacting that power on people. You really don't see Roxy hurting people. <laughs> Unless she has to. Unless or she, has, she to, has to. Um, when it's kind of like ward situations. Mm-hmm. She seems to kill very specific people. Mm-hmm. Either for personal, her family, or for business. Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem to want to just go on a killing spree. It's not willy-nilly in the way that it can be with others. Especially in the part where she's in the tree. Speaking mm-hmm. of important scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, her and Tunde are in the tree, and the, the the camp full of innocent people has been attacked, and they kill children. And these these women soldiers, um, who I think she mentions being on glitter, mm-hmm. kill the children, and they are raping men and killing women and men. And she's just up in this tree; she doesn't have that power anymore. But again, there's that killing of willy nilly, mm-hmm. and that never seemed her style. No. Um, in fact, she's really disgusted by it, watching it, um, which I think is easy to be when you also don't have the ability to do that anymore. But um, the glitter also, I think, is a very interesting element um, because what glitter is is this new designer drug that makes uh, the power like a billion times stronger and also much harder to control. And I think that the ability to control is valued a lot in this novel. Um, it makes me think of Margot's outburst with Daniel. Margot, at this point, is the mayor of a city in Wisconsin, I want to say. And she's, is she running for Senate? She's running running for for governor. governor. Running for governor. Daniel's already governor. He's already governor. And they are on some sort of televised debate debate moment. And he is pushing her and pushing her about her children, um, North Star, the North Star program, which is the... The, the camps that she started to help train the girls with the power to use it properly. Basically militarize yeah. the young women of yeah. the country. Um, and he pushes her a little bit too far, and she gives him, like, almost a little punch um, in the side where she electrocutes him, and everybody sees it happen. And at first you think, oh, no, she's going to lose. But she doesn't. She sweeps the floor. She wins. Probably, we almost get the feeling because of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting too is that Margot early on seemed to be the character that was the most in control. She was hiding it, and she was telling. She openly was like, "The fact that I can control this is what satisfies me the most." Mm-hmm. There are all these other people who are having outbursts, but I have this, and I could kill everyone in here, and I've chosen not to. Mm-hmm. So that outburst, I think, really shows what the power is doing to people. Um, It was one of the points that I mentioned in my notes was violent thoughts beget violent actions. And that was a lot of what I think the power, power in general gives you the ability to do is to act out on these violent thoughts. And that was one of the striking differences I saw too, uh, also back on 333 when Daryl takes the scheme. I think that was the first time that 
the power was described or associated with being drunk. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times before that, uh, it was described as something sweet or like a fruit kind of smell or scent. And when Daryl starts to practice with it, it's it's more of um, something really tempting and, and uh, you know, yeah. without control. Intoxicating. Intoxicating, exactly. And almost as if it has like a kind of adrenaline pump up effect where you have, I don't know, maybe it's just easier to access like a blind rage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So there's like this countdown that's going on throughout this entire novel, um, mixed in with artifacts, archaeological mm -hmm. artifacts that um, the audience is being presented with, as well as even um, seems like these Reddit internet archives of almost meninist conversations of, you know, the women want to kill us all, et cetera, et cetera. And there's um, just all of these little structural things that are put into the novel that I think are kind of hard to um, distinguish exactly what their purpose is. The countdown in particular, um, I'm interested to see what you guys think about it, um, if you found it to be anticlimactic, confusing at the end. I mean, I think I did find it to be somewhat anticlimactic. I mean, once once they have the power, you start to definitely get a sense of where this is going. As Ali's talking about, you you aren't going to be safe until you own it. You know where that's going, and you know from the beginning that this is people who are going to flip that society. You don't know exactly how it's going to work out. Um, but I think it was anticlimactic in the fact that we don't see all of the fallout afterward. You have the framed, the frame narrative with the letters. Mm -hmm. So you, you definitely see the result, but there's a lot in between that you don't really see. Yeah. I agree with that. I feel like it, it's this whole countdown throughout the whole novel and it ends with, um, what's her name? Roxy saying, at least we have a bunker and you're just an underground bunker and you're just left with, well, what does that mean for everyone else? Or even in the bunker, in the underground bunker, what can happen down there, or who knows? Yeah, who are you going to let in? Right. Hopefully no one with the power. It's hard. Um, it's hard to protect yourself in this world, and it seems like almost the, I want to say the rulers of the world, the major players of the world, in the end, there's this moment where they're kind of all coming to the same thought. 5,000 years isn't that long of a time. Um, are we just... I guess the implication is that the world is going to have to start over. Mm -hmm. And whether that happens through nuclear warfare, I guess that's a little bit of the implication. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to throw out some questions yeah. here that I have that I haven't quite felt answered yet, mm -hmm. like after reading the book that play into this. And I'm curious yeah. what all of you think. So if if 5,000 years isn't that long, and if we see the start of the new world, um, because there's now a bunker, and then we hear the letters where 5,000 years later, women are kind of the um, dominant gender in society, um, 
we know that currently, and we also know that at the beginning of the book, men were the dominant gender, right? We know, mm -hmm. and, and so we know, and we also know, um, what's interesting is the beginning of the book starts out kind of with a summary of the Bible. And there's a mix between true, like actual religion that we read now and the religion in the book where, um, and, and there's references to an ark referencing the flood in the mm -hmm. Bible where God said that there was going to be a flood to kind of clear everyone who wasn't worthy almost. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm curious, um, is that it, it reads almost to me as a uh, pessimistic as far as there's always hope that you can restart and rebuild and that something new and good will come from it. But we see at the, at the end during the letters that men are put down in the same way that women are currently put down, which I think we can all assume is probably not the optimal outcome. Mm -mm. So is that deeply pessimistic about human, humans in power? What, is, what does that mean? Will there always be someone in power? And then does that mean there will be, always be someone without power? Or is it a warning on what could happen but doesn't have to happen? Sorry, kind of out there, no, but totally. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that it's it's really concerning that basically they have the same system with this, you know, this opportunity to restart this flood, um, and it just ends up the having the same power dynamics as today. And the implications are that you know they've gone through a really similar cycle of you know men were like horribly disparaged for some amount of time. Now we're kind of in this contemporary, like back to 2016, back to 2019 moment where the men are, you know, advocating for themselves, trying to get, you know, their foot in the door, glass ceiling stuff. And it's so troubling. Like, I don't know what to make of this novel, except for that when you have an entire society where there's thousands of years of one group being placed above the other, whether they're forcibly placing themselves, or I guess forcibly placing themselves, it's, it's very hard to undo. And there's that revenge aspect what do you guys think of how revenge plays into, especially the first 10 years of the, the time of the girls? I mean, I think it's interesting because there's mentions in the book of these, these separate up in the hills and the mountains. There are these tribes where they're attacking men for their previous crimes. Mm -hmm. And they mention these, these women who were attacked and who are now wreaking havoc. And there are discussions of all of these, all of these men that are being attacked for things that they specifically didn't do, but because of the rage that women have against men. Um, which I think has been a really common topic in the class as we're talking about where do we take out that rage. It was similar um, in The Dark Knight Rises when they're talking about the courts, and you're guilty regardless um, because of the society that you're a part of. Mm -hmm. I think it also goes into how where the book stands on feminism. Mm -hmm. um, Mandolin and I were discussing it earlier. Is it a feminist book? Is it pro-feminist? And how does it view the movement that's going on right now? Mm -hmm. I think, um, and yeah, like, to bring it back to Dark Knight Rises, I think 
I got the feeling at the end of the story that what if the bomb in Gotham did go off and like the world was reset? And I think we're presented with the same scenario here where the final part of this book, we start to see Roxy come around like when she and uh, Tunda spend you know time together in the tree. Um, it's more of a equality interaction. Mm-hmm. And we see Eve start to rethink like, oh man, where did I start here? Mm-hmm. Because she saw that she was perpetuating a cycle of, um, you know, really messed up stuff. And and at the end, we see Margot um, become, but we see the voice start to speak to her and see, you know, like if the world resets and if the candidates are Margot, Roxy, and Eve, how will they take that clean slate and move forward? Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, it's someone like Roxy that has understood power and has had it and knows the value. Um, but it could just as easily, like, even though Eve experiences change at the end, I, I still wouldn't be confident in in her having a position of power going forward. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like she breaks her brain at the end mm-hmm. um, with that realization that her um, abusive stepmother is now running a home for orphaned girls and boys and the implication is that she is still sending i guess a man her new husband her new husband up to punish the children teach them a lesson about you know chastity um being godly by raping them yeah it's well, and that always happened, even before, quote-unquote, women were in charge, mm-hmm. which says something you don't necessarily, just because, and I, I don't mean this as an, in a bad way, because I do think women need more places of, of uh, agency, but just because a woman is in power doesn't mean that good things will happen, mm-hmm. which I think can be seen in a lot of places, both in the book and in our society. Corporate America. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But I think talking about how we want someone like Roxy to end up on top, we want that because she no longer wants that. By the end of the book, she wants to hide in her bunker and wait it out and live her life. And if you think about it, the people who you want to be in power are not the people who want to be in power. Mm-hmm. If someone wants it, they shouldn't have it. And I think that Roxy giving it up in that way and losing it, that's why... The whole relationship between her and Tunde can happen. Um, You have that scene where they're intimate for the first time. And the only reason that that happens and is so sweet and equal is that neither of them have any power anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that it's entirely consensual and it's entirely between them and it's real because there is no way to force it upon each other anymore because they're genuinely equals in that society. Which I think also really uh, puts into relief how much after the power uh, came into play, sex was changed and distorted, and those power dynamics became pretty much inherently uh, non-consensual. I am wondering uh, what you guys are thinking in terms of the era of Trump, how this book, how this narrative fits in. I'm confused. <laughs> I think we, we've all kind of touched on the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and especially with Margot's character, 
there are people that surround her that kind of there are sort of checks to her power, mm-hmm. um, but as she she's already had political power even before uh, the start of the novel. But as she develops the the power, um, she doesn't she kind of dismisses those checks, um, like her uh, Daniel, I think it is, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that to me was the the kind of bridge to you know today. Um, as to, you know, there needs to be some sort of cooperation. There needs mm-hmm. to be some sort of... I was thinking about, about it like, the, the people that have the power in this book are kind of like on a roller coaster where they're focused on what they're doing, but they're not completely in control. Um, and I think, like, that section of the Roxy and, and Tunda, like, they, without the power, they're forced to trust and, um, you know, rely on each other. Um, and I think that someone that's just completely calling the shots left and right isn't mm-hmm. is not the answer. And they have complete equality in their relationship. It's mm-hmm. not like before. It's not Tunde is strong and more capable. It's, they're both pretty weak. Yeah, which I think going back to what Mandolin was saying about is it optimistic or pessimistic, I think there definitely are pessimistic aspects in it. As in, if we continue to go in the same way that we're living now, this is this is where we're going. We're always going to be in a society where someone's on top. But it doesn't need to be that way. As Neil says in the letter at the end of the book, it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's kind of cliched at this point, but an eye for an eye makes everyone blind. Um, there's a difference between wanting to have equality and wanting to have power. And to... Um, and, and that I think is really, really important as far as this book goes, but also as far as it says, like, how does it, what aspects of life in the Trump era has this book helped you to understand, um, is I think there's a lot of people vying for power or to push other people out of powerful situations. There's a lot of focus on who has what and who doesn't have what and who can get the most done quickly with the most people behind them. And I think focusing on not that individuals should not be focused on, but focusing, I think, on how we've all hurt each other while important is not going to necessarily fix it. Mm-hmm. That just acknowledges it. It doesn't heal it. And it doesn't change it. Um, just to, I guess, wrap what you set up, um, I pulled this quote from Niall Alexander from Tor.com, and he said that this book does focus on, um, or not focus, but explores the inversion of power, but it is also an investigation into what doesn't change, and I think um, that's really relevant with what we're speaking on. Nothing really is better um, in this world run by women. And I think that we can all agree that that's not what anybody who's sensible wants. Women over men, men over women. That's not chill. (laughs) (laughs) So I would like to thank everyone and reintroduce everyone. Um, We have Amanda, Mandolin, Jordy, Kalani, and Beth. 
And I just want to thank you guys so much for um, going down this rabbit hole with yeah. each other. Yeah, it's a good time. Thank you. Good, good job. job.